Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. It is the first day of spring, Monday, March 21st, 2022. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary, inviting you yet again to join us if you are in South Florida or want to take a brief jaunt to South Florida to join us on April 6th for a live taping of the Commentary Podcast in Palm Beach. Abe will be there, Christine will be there, Noel will be there, Dan Senor will be there, and maybe some other special guests. Go to commentary.org slash live podcast for more details. You can just come, you can come for a meet and greet, and you can come for a VIP dinner, three levels of participation at commentary.org slash live podcast. And here they are, Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior Writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. So I guess we are, it's amazing to say this after, I don't know, three and a half weeks, but I guess we are in the uh, stalemate and destruction stage of the war in Ukraine, uh, which is to say that uh, the Russians are not making any forward advances. uh, And so they are now, people say like, oh, you know, the Russians are, you know, soon the Russians are going to move on to their famous escalate to de-escalate strategy and they're going to be bombarding cities. Well, I don't know what do you mean soon because that's what's happening now. They're leveling Mariupol, it appears. They are now, you know, uh, going after uh, civilian targets in Kiev, very seriously, malls, theaters, you know, all of that. And so... uh, I don't know why we haven't assumed that stage two has started yet. Am I, am I missing something? Yeah. I don't know who's saying, you know, hang tight. This is coming because I I just heard it this morning on a couple of, on a couple of shows. It's it's like the cliche of the moment, you know, we're waiting for the Soviets to escalate, to deescalate, but that's, that's where they've been for two weeks from what I can tell. Yeah. And I think that, that strike outside Lviv uh, was was an escalate to de-escalate situation because it was it had no strategic purpose other than to scare Westerners. So that was one of those escalatory signals. But yeah, like you say, Chernihiv and Mariupol are surrounded and they're being raised. Kharkiv and uh, Kiev, to a lesser degree, are subject to regular bombardment, even though they're still supplyable, um, but they're being leveled. Uh, so yeah, that's we're there in that situation. That's and reportedly forces around Kiev and Kharkiv are digging in, preparing for a long siege. So this is going to be the status quo for the foreseeable future, unless there can be some sort of a breakout. And we have seen some Ukrainian counteroffensives, small in scale, but nevertheless headline grabbing, that only reinforce the extent to which this is settled into a, a stalemate. And Biden did just announce, uh, I think yesterday, that they're adding a stop in Poland to their to his NATO trip later this week. You think he's flying out on Wednesday for a NATO meeting and he's going to then stop in Poland and see the president there. So there's I don't know if that's any additional signal to the Russians about negotiating or if it's just simply him. I mean, they claim to be talking about a humanitarian aid corridor. I, I very much don't want to be um, overly hopeful about uh, what's going on there. But a part of me thinks it's only logical that uh, if there's a if we're in a stalemate situation, over time, the stalemate has to tip in the Ukrainians' favor um, just because they're there, uh, they have resources, 
they have morale. They actually, you know, have numbers con- considering that, that everyone who's involved and um, the Russians are increasingly cut off. Supply chains are bad. Their morale is bad. Um, I hope that's the case. As I said, I don't I don't want to be overly hopeful. I think the issue here is how much punishment the Ukrainians can take, how much suffering they can endure. Uh, it's not for us to make this decision. It's not they they will relent when they will relent. I mean, obviously, they're not relenting. So uh, this idea that, I mean, they are, you know, they're, they're sacrificing them. They're saying, you know, we will, we will be your targets uh, as long as you, until you tire of this embarrassment that you're inflicting on yourselves. And that is a strategy. That is a real strategy. It's a, it's a nightmarish thing, um, but they are using whatever it is that they have to their advantage. Um, I guess we should bring up this question of the, one of the great advantages, of course, is the moral suasion that uh, of, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky has, um, has uh, mastered. Um, and uh, I think he took it a step too far this weekend in his, um, you know, remote address to the Knesset in Israel, uh, where he, uh, you know, lambasted Israel, which is itself, you know, in a condition of constant Cold War against uh, rivals, a rival that will, you know, fire rockets at a moment's notice. Um, you know, he sort of made this demand that Israel transfer Iron Dome uh, anti-aircraft uh, missilery to to him, uh, you know, on the grounds that uh, this is some analog to the Holocaust, and um, that was a bad analogy. Number one and number two, Israel can't transfer Iron Dome because unlike other anti-aircraft missilery, you know, in place all over the world, its use is not theoretical but practical. Like you know, every two or three weeks, it could be the case that. Israel has to use Iron Dome. Uh, the war with Gaza and you know Hamas is and and Hezbollah is ongoing. Uh, it is you know it, it, it's it, it's quiet at the moment, but it could flare up at any minute, and it would particularly flare up if there were some kind of news that Israel had transferred Iron Dome or parts of Iron Dome to to Ukraine. So um, you know. Uh, there, I think we have a case of Zelensky uh, misunderstanding, as the, much of the world does, whether Zelensky is himself, you know, a Jew or not. The the, the relative power of Israel is not a major Western power, with uh, you know whose military is deployed in mostly symbolic ways, or or is you know is is used you know to sort of you know, as a kind of forward defense over a long period of time. It's a, it's a, it's in a, it's in a war. It is in a declared war with two, you know, on two fronts that is more like a chronic illness than it is, you know, an an out and out constant battle. But, um, you know, Israel doesn't have that stuff to spare. There's no, there, there, there's no extra. And um, and uh, 
uh, you know, his focus on his own troubles and suffering. And I have no problem with him, you know, making the request. But this idea that somehow Israel is falling morally short because it can't it, it can't spare its anti-aircraft technology or anti-missile technology um, was uh, was, I think, the first example of a kind of overshoot or. Or, or, or misunderstanding uh, that this extremely clever, extremely literate, extremely Western savvy uh, warrior politician has made. And it, it's it was upsetting also because it, it advances these this false idea that, um, you know, the, that Israel has been uh, insufficiently um, condemning of of Russia to begin with and should have been doing more the whole time. I mean. Israel's been sending tons and tons of aid to Ukraine. Israel did vote to condemn Russia, the UN, and that's this is this is what they can do, you know, as you say. And this and this advances um, the the charges against them. And I just want to talk about. So, in response to this, I saw a tweet from Adam Kinzinger. Says, "quote Israel's reaction to Ukraine will have bearing on future aid from the U.S. to Israel. Pay it forward." This is uh, stupid and shocking to me. Uh, there's a, a, one dimension of this is that, t- to my mind, and I'm certainly to the Israelis' mind, is that the, the, the U.S. is in the midst of trying to negotiate with Russia an Iran, a deal for uh, the Iranian nuclear program that the Israelis very much don't want. Um, and now... They're, now the U.S. is going to lecture them or represent, people in the U.S. are going to lecture them about how they need to get in line and do the right thing and condemn uh, and, 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 and give uh, anti-missile aid uh, to, to, to Ukraine. I mean, this is just such a clear example of the U.S. not stepping up and, and shifting around the blame. Yeah, that's exactly right. There's a practical question of just how effective Iron Dome would be. I mean, it can intercept Kassam rockets, right? But can it intercept altitude launch cruise cruise missiles? I don't know. I'm not an expert in that. Very unlikely. I certainly certainly, know I certainly that. can't do hyper. Certainly can't intercept hypersonic missiles if Russia is if actually they're using that. Yeah, that's the claim. Them. But yeah, ground based mid course interceptors, Aegis. I mean, those systems certainly can. But those are our systems. And uh, uh, Secretary uh, Lloyd Austin was in Bratislava, where he was asked directly last week about providing missile interceptors directly to this conflict in lieu of MiGs, which would probably be even more effective because what we're talking about when it hit the West isn't aren't fixed wing aircraft over Western Ukraine because their air defenses are still pretty effective and intact, it's missiles. And he refused to answer the question, just kind of sidestepped the question, which suggests that it's gonna be a live issue for, for a while, but Israel doesn't seem like the vector of transmission here that we should be uh, focused on or that Kiev should be focused on. Also, uh, in terms of not wanting other conflagrations to exist in the world and, you know, create greater chaos, Israel has a very complex, touchy relationship with Russia that is all about ensuring that hostilities don't break out between Israel and Russia in Syria and that stray attacks or you know things happening that 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 they can de-escalate before they escalate or prevent prevent direct engagement between Israel and Russia it's been from what we can tell a wildly successful back channel policy that the entire world should be happy with because it means that you know 
it means that another regional war won't break out where people have to respond. And um, and under those circumstances, Israel has already gone further than than I would have expected it would, given the pricklish prickling prickliness of the situation by you know condemning the Russian U- invasion at the UN um, and you know sending congratulations and all of that. Um, as I say, I think it's more a kind of weird uh, misunderstanding on the part of Zelensky, almost like he's one of these you know. Uh, people in the West who who aren't sort of like totally up on the situation, who actually think that Israel is vastly more powerful, bigger, stronger than it is, and that therefore it has this, you know, it has excess capacity in the military realm. I mean, what it has, it has an arms business and it will sell weapons and material to people. But, you know, those are like long-term contracts. That's not stuff you can just, you know, incept out of nothing those are you know those are those are purchases that then are fulfilled including purchases that we make uh of of israeli technology and things like that and so um he uh he interfered a little bit with uh with this image of himself as you know i don't know what the new moses or the new you know the new sort of uh, the jewish this kind of you know uh, new Jewish leader in in a in a in a in an old style because he somehow decided to to take it to sort of uh, use his standing as a as a Jewish leader to make an uh, irrational or irresponsible demand of of Israel that is now being used by frankly um, you know I don't know slimy or you know hysterical i not slimy is not the right word but like people like adam kinzinger or 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 ben wittis or something like that going this is really shocking that israel would you know not understand the moral the gravity and you know blah 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 i mean he said never again whatever whatever is going on between ukraine and russia it is not a holocaust that is not what is going what is going on here is a conventional war in the old style um, which is horrible beyond belief. And the goal, the, there's an ideological goal that Russia has, which is to subsume Ukraine into Russia, which is an old-style imperial desire. It is not a desire to destroy every living Ukrainian. Well, things are getting a little blurry, it's, frankly. I, I just uh, want to okay. add one, one word to what John said about being yeah. used. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, it's quick. It's it's being used by two separate parties, Uh it's being used by people who are, are now saying, see, I told you Zelensky wasn't this great guy all along. Right. You, you, you fools thought he was this, you know, perfect, wonderful leader. And it's being used by people who have, you know, are, are have been on a campaign to demonize Israel and say that it's not doing uh, what it should be doing. Sorry. Right. So there's a kind of it is an interesting thing. Yeah. It's sort of Yoram uh, Hazoni kind of, you know, uh, who obviously as a as a NatCon leader, um, you know, it has ambiguous feelings about Putin. And by the way, Israelis have ambiguous feelings about Putin. Uh, this is the complication. Like Putin is the first Russian leader in history who is relatively benign toward Israel and the Jews. That includes every Soviet leader. And, um, and maybe Yeltsin was, I mean, Yeltsin really wasn't really an issue for Yeltsin. But so it's weird. Like there has been a kind of cessation of, 
ideological hostility emanating from Moscow for the first time in like 140 years. And so the idea that, you know, that Israel should, you know, it's like demanding that Israel take the lead in attacking uh, Mohammed bin Salman or something like that uh, over the over the horrible assassination uh, of the um, of the Turkish journalist whose name I'm now is now eluding me, but um, uh, the Khashoggi. Saudi journalist uh, Khashoggi. I'm sorry uh, that that um, you know that they're supposed to because they were Israel supposed to be a light unto the nations and all of this like. Not every one of the 204 countries on earth has an equal moral obligation to be a leader in fighting, you know, tyranny. Like Israel is fighting terrorism and preventing Iran from getting a nuclear weapon for the rest of the planet for a fact for which something it's been doing for its own sake, but actually doing for the entire world for, for which it gets absolutely no international credit but has been doing this and making sure that Iran doing whatever it can to make sure that Iran doesn't proliferate. Um, that's its role in, you know, in helping to bring about world peace as by the way, is its role in, in coming up with some kind of relationship with the Saudis, which is a transformative event in world politics, a change of a hundred year, you know, almost a hundred years of hostility being altered uh, in the you know in the center of the most unstable region of the world, and is Israel deserving of you know cri criticism and blah 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 blah? Yes, but it doesn't need to be a leading force in the world's response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. There are more powerful countries that are doing that. Us, you know, Britain, uh, France. I mean, these are nuclear powers. With large standing armies and large, you know, and 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 serious military weaponry, and not everybody has to be the deliverer of Ukraine's deliverance. Okay, well, um, there's quite a bit. I'm just going to interject here because okay. there's quite a bit of uh, our friend Lahav Harkov at the Jerusalem Post cataloged the reaction from um, more hawkish, particularly right leaning and, and more religious members of the Knesset in response to uh, uh, Zelensky's speech, which was indig uh, indignation outrage, um, bordering on Holocaust denial, one said. Uh, another, uh, you know, very incensed over the use of the word genocide, which is the wrong used word to use when it comes to Russia's conduct in Ukraine. They are not executing a genocide by its textbook definition, the invocation of which triggers a lot of uh, activity on the part of international institutions based on by their, their covenants, their founding charters. Uh, so that word should not be thrown around lightly. Ethnic cleansing, however, should, according to the reporting that we're getting from inside Ukraine in the occupied portions of this country, and which has been reproduced in the uh, New York Times, that there is a concerted uh, campaign to exfiltrate thousands of ethnic Ukrainians, reintroduce them into Russia proper, put them in camps, put them on trial. These are credible reports that constitute ethnic cleansing if we understand Ukrainian and Russian to be distinct ethnic categories, which they are. Right. Uh, that makes things a little difficult for for Israel. Uh, based I don't on think it makes covenant. things difficult for Israel. Just based on the reaction that you're seeing uh, from Knesset members, uh, outsized indignation and defensiveness. Right. I think right. it does. I think it well, does put no. them in a moral quandary. I don't think it's a more. I, I look. No, they're not. By the way, those people are not in a moral quandary. They're outraged. They think that they're being they're being. Um, that Zelensky is somehow, you know, selectively going after them using his position as a Jew to make 
you know, demands that they can't meet and that and that he is using uh, emotional and moral blackmail. Yeah, so they don't like it. And, you know, then you then you start getting into other cultural things like, you know, Zelensky's kids have been baptized into the Orthodox Church. I mean, it's not this is not this is not a simple issue here. It's not like, oh, my God, this is fantastic. He's like Sandy Koufax and sitting out on Yom Kippur. I mean, his his standing as a Jew is an amazing thing. The fact that he is Jewish is an amazing thing. But he's not very Jewish and he is not, you know, that, you know, it's it's a it's something that is, you know, thrilling and fascinating and culturally fascinating in 10,000 ways. But that doesn't give him unique standing to make demands of the Jewish state. Um, well, and and he, what what he did is exactly is sort of the reverse uh, image of what we see all in, international institutions doing. We just saw it this week with Amnesty International, which is behaving in abominable fashion and, you know, put up an apartheid avenue sign outside the Israeli embassy in London. And, you know, just this ridiculous uh, standard to which they hold Israel and no other country on earth. So in a way, I you can understand, I, I understand both Zelensky's motivation, especially given uh, what, what Noah was flagging, this news of, of Ukrainians being shipped into Russia and put into camps and ethnically cleansed, his sense of urgency and demanding of Israel, probably assuming Israel would be a more um, more open to uh, reacting to this sort of change in the way that Russia is conducting the war. On the other hand, I I mean, I'm with the Israelis who are like, you know, you we're all part of this international community here. We do. We don't have different rules that we are. We should be forced to live by. This is the constant message that Israel brings to every negotiation at the U.N. When you look at how the U.N. treats Israel, it is a standard to which no other country on earth is held. And that is wrong. So they're, I hate to say they're both right, but you can see where both sides are coming from on this particular issue. Well, let's see if he gives a speech before the Egyptian parliament. I exactly. mean, it's not, it's not really an Egyptian problem. I just mean like Israel's a country of 9 million people. You know, Ukraine's a country of 44 million people. Israel has a uniquely powerful military for a country of its size because it has no choice. It has no choice but to have one because it wouldn't exist if it didn't. And therefore, its military is almost purely defensive, even though, of course, there is this there is this uh, global fantasy that Israel is an aggressor and exists to aggress against the Palestinians and aggress and be imperialist. It's almost exactly the opposite. So therefore, it's disappointing, but only mildly disappointing, minimally disappointing, because I want to go that Zelensky kind of fell prey to this this similar delusion. Um, but it, you know, it's, uh, you know, as, 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 as larger matters go, it's really not very important in the scale of this discussion. It's just, I think, given who we are at commentary, it's important for us to discuss this and, and try to take note of it, but, you know, okay. So he went to, he's going places and saying, give me, give me, give me things. My country is being destroyed by this other country. Um, but there he took a difference. He was like, you have to give me something because you are morally obliged to, and effectively saying you're morally obliged to because uh, I'm a Jew and you're Jews. And then you get that weird thing, which is my this weird discomfort that, you know, people are saying, you want Jews to go defend Ukraine? Do you know what you, you know, do you know historically what that territory before there was a country called you, whatever, what it did to Jews? What kinds of massacres were perpetrated against Jews from 1880 onward? What kind of pogroms were perpetrated against Jews in the land that is now Ukraine? 
And now you're demand, you're making a moral demand that Jews, you know, save Ukraine. Uh, as I say, it's all, it's almost sort of amazing that Israel has lined up as fervently with Ukraine as it has diplomatically, right, given that I, history. It's it's not. I mean, history moves fast, and things are very different. But but there are a lot of. I mean, there are a lot of America's Jews can trace descent to particularly the the early 20th century pogroms in Kiev. I mean, there was a, it was a massive, uh, massive pogrom all in and around the city. And a lot of people who fled then came to the U.S. Most of the of the I think it was the second Aliyah, the first the wave of Jews immigrating to Palestine came from Odessa, places like mm-hmm. Odessa. I mean, At, you know, I mean, Vladimir I, Jabotinsky was from was from Odessa. Much of the sort of intellectual class of Israel in the early 20th century were Odessan Jews, and they did not leave Odessa with a positive feeling about the culture and the politics of the land that they had just fled. 100,000 so, Jews were murdered in, well, in what is now Ukraine and Poland yeah. in 1919. 100,000 yeah. people, and then many more fled. Yeah. And so anyway, I'm just saying, I'm just saying, like, it's, I don't, I don't hold Zelensky responsible for having made a what I think is a sort of ill-considered speech or sort of like one that that backfired on him in the sense that, you know, he has created some resistance or hostility to him in Israel. Not that that really matters because Israel was never going to be a great supplier. Yeah, I, I agree. It's, it's it's not it's not a tremendously big deal. I'm annoyed that people are, are going to make it a, a bigger deal than it is. But I just want to add to this point that in the present day, there are more Jews in Russia than in Ukraine. And uh, if the 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 relationship, the, the, the current decent relationship that John talked about between Israel and Russia were to sour, um, not a, not a very comfortable position necessarily for for the Russian Jews to be in. Right. Well, the whole thing is the whole point is that things are very complicated and somehow this ends up getting plugged in to a you know, a situation and, you know, in that sense, as I say, Zelensky sort of made a, made a mistake. I mean, it's like he made a mistake because I think the reason that everybody was excited in Israel to hear him speak before the Knesset was precisely this Sandy Koufax effect. You know, it's like, we're with you. This is so amazing. Look, you're there and you're the world hero. And, you know, that's wonderful. And then he's like, you better give me what I want or you stink. You know, um, you're morally depraved. You know, that's not exactly the message that you want to hear. And, you know, generally speaking, he's been trying to give he's been trying to argue by persuasive. You know, he said when he was speaking before the Congress, obviously a much different situation, but he said, we need a no fly zone. But if you can't give us a no fly zone, how about giving us, you know, what is it? The uh, S. uh, S three hundred, yes, three hundreds, right? So, so it's not like he he said, you know, we're grateful to be the leader of the free world. This was this was harsher. It was a a harsher message that he delivered to Israel, which is sort of under in some weird sense, like Israel is the least powerful of the countries whose whose parliaments he has addressed, and and probably could be the least, you know, its help would be not as important as the help that he would get from others. So he sort of let loose a little bit in a, in a kind of weird, it's a little weird. It's a little weird that that's where he went with this instead of continuing on his love tour, you know, where he could have, and then, then you could have had internal pressure in Israel where people are saying, why don't we give him some iron dome? 
He's so wonderful. He's Sandy Koufax out there. I mean, not that they could. I don't really, they, they can't. This is not like, there's not an endless supply of this stuff and they, they can't look like they're letting their guard down against Hamas and Hezbollah. They can't. I mean, that is just, that's a provocation that caught, that can bring war to them. So, okay, let's, let's take a break from this part of the conversation and let me talk to you about a new advertiser, Policy Genius. Look, uh, if someone relies on your financial support, whether it's a child, an aging parent, or even a business partner, you need life insurance. It can give you peace of mind if something happens to you, your loved ones that have a financial cushion for rent or mortgage payments, loans, education costs, everyday expenses. Having life insurance through your job may not be enough. Most people need up to 10 times more coverage to properly provide for their families. Typically, life insurance gets more expensive as you age, so it's smart to get a policy sooner rather than later. Policy Genius, one word, is your one-stop shop to find and buy the insurance you need. Head to policygenius.com and answer a few questions. In minutes, you can compare personalized quotes from top companies to find your lowest price. You could save 50% or more on life insurance by comparing quotes with Policy Genius. The team of licensed experts at Policy Genius will, will help you understand your options and apply for the policy you choose. And the Policy Genius team works for you, not the insurance companies. You can trust them to offer unbiased help and advocate for you at every step until you're covered. Thousands of five-star reviews, options that offer coverage in as little as a week and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Since 2014, Policy Genius has helped over 30 million people shop for insurance and placed over $120 billion in coverage. Head to policygenius.com. That's one word, P-O-L-I-C-Y-G-E-N-I-U-S.com to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. And of course, it's time for me to talk to you about the X chair because what would a Monday be without me talking to you about the X chair, that patented LMX technology that warms you up if you're cold and can cool you down if you're too hot. With that, uh, 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 lumbar support. I'm sorry, the dynamic variable lumbar that that could that gives your lower back the kind of support that you've always dreamed of and that and that you need so much. High performance, quality engineering, extreme comfort. These are all reasons to love your X chair. So take my advice. Try X chair for yourself risk-free for 30 days. Once you realize how much better your chair should be, you'll never go back. Go to xchaircommentary.com. That's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com. Or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR for $100 off your order. X-CHAIR has that 30-day guarantee of complete comfort. You can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. XCHAIRCOMMENTARY.COM. So here we are. uh, I believe as we speak today, uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson is her confirmation hearing is beginning uh, for uh, her uh, seat on the Supreme Court, which I believe is pretty close to being a foregone conclusion, uh, since I think two or three Republicans are already signaling that they're going to vote for her. And, you know, it may be that a bunch of others decide to give in and vote for her also, uh, just because, you know, maybe they want to look more nicer or something like that. And maybe she'll conduct herself in a way that will make her very likable. Um so it's interesting because uh, there is a a long hagiographic profile of her in the New York Times today um, in that 
uh, I think is sociologically very interesting because it's all about how she got to Harvard and, you know, it was hard. It was, she, she, she fought injustices. There was a, there was a Confederate flag and she didn't like it. And, and she made the school say, you should take down the Confederate flag. And she did this and she did that. And she was a leader and she, 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 she was friendly to everybody. But I mean, the, the story that is, most remarkable is the story of her to, to me was the story of her parents. She was raised in Miami by school teachers who basically said to her, you can be anything you want to be. You can do anything you want to do. you got to work hard. you got to show that you've got to show yourself that you're you know, self-confident and that you're as good or better than everybody else. And, uh, and that is what you have to do. And in a 2019 speech she gave at the university of Chicago, um, uh, according to the New York Times, she implored the black law students she was addressing not to let slights, doubts, or injustices derail them. Quote, so what does it take to rise through the ranks despite those who don't think you have it in you and will remind you of their feelings at every turn? It demands that you tune out those voices, block out their little flags, and ignore the haters rather than indulging them. And this is a message that she got from her parents. What strikes me as interesting about this is that, A, not only is it a great message, and not only is that the idea that this is somehow race-based, that uh, that m imposter messages or messages that the world doesn't like you and is hostile to you or isn't going to want to you know see you succeed and all of that are messages that every single person hears in their head or most people let's say hear in their head and go through and it's all this remarkable fact that it seems to be the case that if you are raised. <laughs> In, a, in an intact family by parents who make it clear that you have intrinsic value and that you are somebody of value and that and that there's no reason for you to think that you're any less of value than anybody else and maybe you're more value than other people that this is the way to succeed in life and to and to and to achieve the aims that you want and there's something sad about the fact that this is cast so explicitly as a racial racial message when in fact it is something that everybody needs to hear, I think. It, and in the U.S., it's, it impacts far more people as a matter of class than it does as a matter of race, because the class hurdles that any any child, regardless of the race, has to overcome in order to if they come from a non-college educated community and go to college and then go on to some sort of professional uh, training as she did. Those barriers are far more indicative of class than they are of race in many cases. Her her story was striking to me because it reminded me a lot of how Condi Rice talks about, how Condoleezza Rice talks about her parents and how she was raised and the kind of message that that was inculcated in, in her and the value system as, as a child. I do think it, if if she's relying on that resilience narrative and the and and leaning heavily on the stories about race she's going to face some really challenging questions with regard to affirmative action particularly given her position and closeness at Harvard University which is the case it's before the court with Asian American students so I, I don't know if that's going to be a backfire uh, uh, problem for her, but I, I would very much, given her history, like to hear her asked about her thoughts about the future of affirmative action, given her own experience and given given Harvard's experience in the current case before the court, which she obviously will say she can't comment on. But that's what I would like her to talk about. The Washington Post uh, uh, editorial board has some helpful advice for Republicans ahead of these confirmation hearings, mostly that they should avoid attacking the candidate, the nominee, and, you know, focus more on uh, perhaps uh, exposing and elucidating her views uh, uh, as a as a jurist. Uh, 
um, you know, talk talk to her about what she thinks about stare decisis and when it's appropriate to to abandon a, a judicial precedent, or um, you know, what promises, if any, did she make to to Joe Biden? Uh, was there a litmus test applied, a la Donald Trump and his uh, nominees, and half a dozen other things that are what you would expect to see in any confirmation hearing and do see in every single confirmation hearing. I think on their minds is this uh, attack leveled against her uh, regarding uh, uh, child pornography. There, a senator from Missouri, whose name I'm, I'm blocking on, the Republican senator. Holly, Josh Holly. Uh, Josh Holly leveled this attack. And uh, over at National Review, Andy McCarthy has a very good piece dismantling his argument, which is specious. Um, but nevertheless, an, something along the lines of a personal attack on her judgment and being soft on crime. But that is also a valuable line of attack. Now, yes. Andy McCarthy's um, piece demonstrates that this is not the avenue to go down, but she has a history in um, sentencing, apparently, that renders her vulnerable to that kind of uh, line of questioning. And it's perfectly valid and legitimate. And I'm not sure what the Washington Post thinks they're not going, they're going to hear from Republicans that is illegitimate because everything they've outlined here is just standard operating procedure for confirming any nominee. Let, let's go to the high school yearbooks, Noah, and see what we can find. I think that's what it, it, it's a right. defense. So the unspoken thing yes, is don't, don't act Kavanaugh. like Democrats. It's no, it, that's exactly right. They're basically saying these are the standards we should follow, except, of course, if it's a Republican nominating someone like Brett Kavanaugh, then, you know, Ruth Marcus, who wrote this thing about how, oh, how low will the Republicans go in, in, in attacking this nominee? was the person who basically said, we don't give the benefit of the doubt to the nominee when it's someone like Kavanaugh. We give it to the people because this is too important. The hypocrisy of these people means anything they write about this nomination should not be taken with anything other than several grains of salt. Look, I mean, uh, she should obviously be held to account for this um, leniency that she seems to show that Josh Hawley sort of isolated on sex offenders, but is clearly part and parcel of her position as a somebody who was a public defender and believes that there is overcharging and over sentencing and the like from you know and so that is something she'll have to address um this idea yeah, this idea that any questioning any tough questioning is um is unfair uh it really is the or you know or or that ad hominem claims of how her her rulings and her ideas are somehow you know bad um, compared to just you know believing made up shit about Brett Kavanaugh, which they all did, and which was made up. Um, she also, I'm going to say it again: it was made up. It was made up. It was made up. And then what about the stuff about Amy Amy Coney Barrett and her you know evil faith that made her. You know, a woman with seven children who, you know, makes it to the Supreme Court, who is somehow believes that women should be, you know, uh, subservient to their husbands, which I believe was part of the claim of her, you know, of her Catholic, whatever that group was that she was that she was part of. It's like, are you, are you kidding me? Like, she's somebody who was clearly the leading person in her marriage and, uh, you know, the more dominating figure in her marriage and that somehow she's to be held to account for ideas about Subserv female subservience. I mean, yeah, the hypocrisy is just like cringe inducing. Katanji Brown has also declined to oppose court packing. Um, and that's that's something that needs following up on. That's not an attack, you know, but there there is this idea that because they're they're 
Democrats have been salivating, waiting for uh, Republicans to do something awful in response to her. So that any the idea is that any tough questioning or any questioning is 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 throwing rocks. So uh, she's probably going to pa- pass through. Um, interesting, of course, she will almost certainly have to recuse herself from the big Harvard affirmative action case. That's not really an, that's not really a reason for her to be you know confirmed or opposed. I mean. Elena Kagan had to had to uh, accuse herself on several cases that she was materially involved with because she had been solicitor general and uh, Katanji Brown Jackson is was part of the Harvard Board of Overseers and she's not going to be able to rule she 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 herself will do herself a favor by refusing to be part of that decision uh, because you know that that will tarnish I know I on the other hand like what will her will her position ever be tarnished but you know, she doesn't, you know, you don't need that kind of tourist somehow, you know, or overshadowing or casting a doubt on, on, on the, on the viability of the decision that is made. But um, I guess in the, in the case of the Supreme court, this, the, those recusals are entirely personal, right? I mean, there's no one who, no one who judges them. I mean, there, she doesn't work for the chief justice or anything like that. So it's an interesting thing, but that's not going to deny her. Uh that's not going to deny her approval, and it is also important to note that her the main her view as a as the fact that she is a public defender and not a prosecutor, and now comes to the court as the first public defender, is itself an interesting example of the sea change uh, in the way Democrats are thinking about criminal justice matters, and that it's okay. Like ordinarily, no president would want to appoint somebody like this, as far left as she is in her views. Um, out of fear of handing the criminal justice issue to the Republicans. And by the way, um, that may happen. We'll see what she says and how she talks in the hearing. But, you know, if she is full-throatedly, you know, a defender of the kinds of ideological positions she seems to have taken during during her career, she will give, there'll be some ammunition for Republicans, it's like not only are the Democrats off on crime and do they want to defund the cops and there's crime waves in every Democrat governed city in the, in the United States, but their Supreme Court nominee uh, doesn't believe in sentence, you know, believes in, in, in lenient sentencing, particularly for sex offenders. I mean, you know, that is it's rare that that you can get that kind of policy political issue out of a Supreme Court hearing, but you, you could. I mean, it's possible, I think. Uh, Hopefully they'll also, I was going to say the other thing they can ask her about, which I would love to hear her thoughts on is qualified immunity. I mean, this is something that's been in obviously uh, with regard to law enforcement, particularly salient issue in recent years, but it would be interesting to hear her constitutional uh, explication of whether qualified immunity is something that, that she would think is justifiable. Uh, let's talk about another example of hypocrisy uh, worth worth discussing. Uh, the New York Times uh, Sunday, I think, had a big expose of how the diary of Ashley Biden got into the hands of Project Veritas, uh, which is apparently a big leak from some investigation seeking, looking into some kind of investigation, looking into whether Project Veritas can be charged with a crime for having gotten its hands on Ashley Biden's diary. But the story itself reveals that uh, in, a, in a bizarre analogy to her brother's behavior, uh, from what we can tell, she just left this diary in a house in Florida. 
the way he left his laptop in a store in Delaware. And uh, even though we're still not 100% sure about the, 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 the sequence of events that led to the laptops getting into the hands of Rudy Giuliani, they sort of lay out the whole thing. She left it in somebody's house. The person found it. And then they gave it to somebody else who gave it to somebody else. And then there was a there was a Republican donor at a party who was like, ooh, this is good. Maybe there's there's good stuff in it and um, and handed it off. Um, not quite sure where there's a crime here. Ashley Biden left her diary in a house that she had rented or hadn't paid. Their, I'm not even quite sure what the story is. And I think it's terrible that people read each other. You know, it's terrible. It's a terrible thing. And it's well, really she bad. did say, didn't she say that she was going to come pick it back up? OK, but again, like she's like her father is running uh, for president of the United States. She shouldn't be leaving a frank diary around. Look, oh, if you I leave sensitive information, look, this is like these these people who work, these congressmen and senators who talk loudly into their cell phones on the Acela and reporters are sitting a row behind them just, you know, being stenographers. It's the job, you know, if, you, if she left sensitive material in a space where she could not guarantee its security, then, you know, it, it's there's a there's a risk that she took in doing that. I agree with you, John. People should not read each other's diaries, but she is the the daughter of a political figure. And unfortunately, that has become fair game in our culture. And she should have been more careful. Uh, it's kind of gross. And I don't like Project Veritas very much at all. And I think their methods are, are sort of obscene and not journalistic. And they are caught in their own conundrum because they want to claim journalistic privilege and protection when it suits them. But they behave in a unethical ways to get some of this information and misleading ways and you know lying to sources and whatnot. So but it is kind of rich to hear the New York Times suddenly get on its high horse about journalistic ethics, especially given their behavior of, of late. Well, I, I think it's unfathomably reckless of her. I'm not, I'm not, I, I totally agree with that. But I don't know if there's no crime. If, if, if you rent a, a, a house or, or if you're staying somewhere, at someone's home, and there are things there that aren't yours uh, and you take them and sell them, that's I, I think that's arguably no, no, but that's crime. I'm talking about Project Veritas committing. Oh, crime. I don't, yeah, I don't know about the, their, their also, culpability is totally murky to me. The diary was a year old. She had left the house. She was no longer a tenant of the house. Um, I mean, I'm just saying her behavior was reckless. And yeah, you know, people do like really, really crappy things during pol political campaigns. Really horrible, crappy things like hiring, uh, you know, hiring uh, a. Uh, former mi6 official to make up crap about donald trump peeing on prostitutes or being peed on by prostitutes i mean you know bad like evil oppo um is uh is let's say bipartisan by its very nature and the the notion that there is something uniquely evil here i mean it's sad like it's sad that the president of the united states has these two kids who are so apparently so troubled it's a sad terrible thing and it's 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 really really a a, a a sad thing but you know so i don't know what to say i'm just saying like if you think that scoops that investigative journalists who get garlanded and celebrated have been celebrated the course of our entire lives don't aren't aren't per, you know purloined in this way or gotten as part of you know weird somewhat immoral behavior on the part of people um 
but being given it is a different issue. And maybe, and I, I'm not, it's not even clear to me, Project Veritas didn't buy it, right? And and it, it says it had no idea what the provenance was. No, I think the, they bought it and then didn't, then didn't. Oh, and they didn't it. use it, right. Yeah. But they, but, but then they, someone else but ran they, it. yeah, and they said they have no idea what the provenance was. And, uh, well, but then it's they just, misled her to get a confirmation from her that it was her diary. That was the that was right. The, right. It was the the we called her up and said, "Oh, hey, how about that diary you left behind?" She was like, "Oh yeah, my diary." So that because they that she kind of stepped right into that and confirmed the thing that they weren't sure of the province. Right. Uh, anyway, I'm just saying, like, I I am I I'm, I'm I enjoy the story. I like you know he, hearing these you know sleazy background details of these sorts of things but um believe me based on my uh my somewhat limited but but in intermittent experience editing investigative journalism and projects where people you know are finding out things like you know it's like the sausage factory you don't want to know where that stuff comes from and if particularly and and so it's always whose ox is being gored because there are plenty of things that people think are just absolutely wonderful that people found out about that that are probably have far worse, uh, you know, provenances than than this diary, particularly since it didn't come out. Right. I mean, it never. Right. If this had been Ivanka's diary, it would have been a 10 page series of, you know, parsing and analysis by The New York Times front page. I mean, yeah, come on. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, you know, we still have the case of of Trump's tax returns uh, being 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 published by the New York Times, which is a you know, which remains federal crime. Absolutely astonishing. You know, it's fine. Again, they got them, they published them. It opens a door. You know, it, the whole point about these sorts of things is, yeah, newspapers and journalistic institutions have have rights to do things that slightly stretch beyond even though they're not supposed to stretch beyond sort of like the the laws that govern other people because of the first amendment right okay so uh they publish they do it's what they what what people never understand and gronk about this and where this starts coming up is if you're going to do it to trump fine so let's see what happens when they do it to somebody else that you like because if you start it, if you open the door and you do something that's never happened before, like leak 20 years of tax records, um, it's open season. It's just open season. You know, you create a new precedent. And like, that's why just because you hate somebody, you actually don't want to open the precedent because, and what's more, guess what happened? Nothing. Did that did that take Trump down? No. What's what what's happened with the tax returns? It appears that the case in Manhattan fell apart because Alvin Bragg, the new DA, said, "I think this is a garbage case that you're building based on these tax returns." So I just think it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting phenomenon to look at. Anything else we need to talk about today that I'm uh, blanking on? Got uh, Jackson. Just one yeah. one caveat, or not one one little additional footnote to some of the stuff we were talking about with the Leah Thomas uh, gender uh, uh, the questions about transgender athletes is that the the young woman who placed seventeenth and did not advance to the NCAA finals. 
because Leah Thomas came in first, uh, wrote a public statement to the NCAA complaining about this and saying, you know, because of your uh, in unwillingness to do something about what what is clearly unfair here, I lost out, which is pretty brave if you consider her position and, and the and the her lack of power vis-a-vis -vis not just the NCAA but the massive culture war that's going on right now over this issue. So bravo to her, um, brava I should say to her. <laughs> I mean, this is an interesting culture war. Noah said this on Friday, which is um, for I don't know a decade or more. Clearly, we have been rushing hard in the other the culture. The victories in the culture war have been all on the side of redefining gender, redefining these conditions, allowing, you know, sort of uh, demoralizing all of these questions. And, uh, and this is the first real object lesson case that, that uh, I think has the, op is throwing, is throwing that relentless forward march back on its heels a little bit. Um, because the uh, uh, the effort to say, for example, that uh, Leah Thomas should be celebrated for her for his her bravery, um, uh, I think falls a little on deaf ears. I mean, I, I maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong, and I don't know. And we'll see what kind of endorsements Leah Thomas gets or doesn't get. I don't know, but um, I I I think that you know uh, populist issues often bubble under the surface and. Uh, we know that uh, that this uh, you know bizarre case in the in the Virginia public school of the gender non-binary boy who seems to have molested girls in a locker room because he decided he wanted to go into the girls' locker room um, played some role in the political outcome in Virginia in 2021, at least sort of in the creation of the idea that there was something going on in these schools by these direct by the by the entire school establishment that was was hostile to the proper working order of the way schools should run that that stretched beyond this to you know closures and pandemic rules and and all of that and you know had this amazing effect on the on the well, know, because on the in this case as with all with a lot of the progressive crime stuff the the all the emphasis was on protecting the the perpetrator and and there was no interest given to the to the condition of the victim and that right. i think is where that that's where the populist instinct lies is like well what about the victim here why are we spending so much time protecting all the the emotional needs and 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 talking about all the rights of the, of the perpetrator when the victim is is ignored? And I think that's these cases are going to continue, unfortunately. To, to and th this is this increase. is this is getting back to that old neoconservative. This is where the neoconservative moment came in in the 1970s, which was that there was a lot of focus on all the stuff that we're still focused on or, or have renewed focus on, you know, sort of remedying past injustices. Uh, through injustices to people in the present moment. In other words, you know, you you, you have this idea that uh, people were uniquely mistreated, and therefore the thing to do is to privilege people like them in the present moment. But what does that do to people in the present moment who bear no responsibility for the past injustices? It's always the problem with quotas or affirmative action: is who do they, whom do they affect, whom? I mean, and in this case, if you think that, you know, gender nonconform, whatever you want to call it, 
uh, justifies Leah Thomas being in be, uh, racing as a as a female, then you got to deal with the the number seventeen person who was kicked out, who for who did not has no third gender thing that she can go step into to get her, you know, unless she wants to race against six year olds or something like that. Like there's nowhere for her to go to remedy the injustice that has been done to her. And that is a, you know, that's a significant fact. And that is how affirmative action became unpopular in the United States. And it is how special pleading always is unpopular because at the moment, the people who want it fail to gronk or care that there are that that the policy will victimize somebody new who is standing right in front of you and not you know somebody who is sadly in a grave you know a hundred years past uh so with that we will we will allow you to enjoy the first day of spring and we will return to talk to you tomorrow for Abe, Christina, Noah, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.